Hi, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we strive to live life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast to help you plug in at Quest both in person and online. Now, let's dive into this week's teaching. So we're beginning the Christmas season, and uh, whenever we're in Christmas season, I always think about uh, Christmas gifts. And as kids, didn't we all have those presents we really, really wanted every year that we wanted to make sure everybody knew? So like if you were grew, grew up sitting on a Santa's lap, you always told Santa that, and you told Grandpa and Grandma that, you told Mom and Dad that, you told your siblings that, you told your uncles and aunts that, you told anybody who would listen exactly what you wanted, right, for Christmas. And uh, today is a little bit different. Now you don't, you tell people, but you don't expect to get the gift, get the gift because you really, what you really want is you want what? Gift cards. And if you're smart like my kids, they look up sometimes where the best deal is so that they don't get a Dick's card when they want a PS4. They don't get a Best Buy card when they want a soccer ball, right? So we plan our, we plan our adventures that way really well. I had the privilege this last week of talking with the Quest Cub Scouts have a great pack that meets here, and they invited me to talk to them about their duty to God badge. So I had, uh, I don't know, 30 so Cub Scouts and their Cub Pack leaders and their parents all in here, and we got to talk with them. And one of the things they did this season as part of their duty to God was they did a food drive the last couple of weeks for warm. And by the way, before I get to tell you more about that, uh, I just found out this last week, Scott Marrier, who is an elder here at Quest and the executive director of WARM, received the award of being one of the finalists for Columbus Magazine's, uh, Columbus CEO Magazine's small nonprofit category. So he got that award, and uh, isn't it awesome? And so... If you've been a part of Black Friday and, and going to do Cyber Monday tomorrow, Giving Tuesday is December 1st. And uh, I would just encourage you to consider giving to uh, the things that go to warm that day. It's a fantastic ministry. It's such a pleasure to, to support a ministry that is so well run in caring for the feeding needs of families in need and kids in need and helping people get jobs and helping with financial counseling. It's just a great great group to be a part of. So back to the scouts. So I'm talking to the scouts and they, they have great families, great kids. They're all learning some really important lessons. And, and as part of their food drive, they got uh, 728 pounds of, uh, of food donated to warm, which is enough to feed eight families of four for six days. And there's a picture of the pickup truck loaded, taking food there. They're going to go to warm in a few days and help them sort it as well. But isn't that awesome? We got a great pack here. And uh, great leaders. In fact, are are some of the leaders here? I know Jeremy, Mandy, and Jeremy and uh, uh, Toma right there. The, the, he's the Cub Scout leader. So just thank him. He runs a great pack. And if your kids are looking for that, talk to him. Uh, now I have to admit, the other thing I'm amazed at by that food drive is that that means that we eat 3.8 pounds per person per day. And I'm surprised I don't grill more because too much of that has been uh, pumpkin pie and ice cream lately. It's been really good. I love Costco pumpkin pies. So, Now, as part of the lesson for duty to God, I asked them this question. I said, what gift do you really want, the Cub Scouts? What gift do you really want for Christmas? Now, remember, these are first through fourth graders. So help me out here. What do you think they said? Action figure. I didn't hear any socks and underwear. I didn't hear that. Action figures. 
right? We get, we get those lists, all the video games, we get those lists, but you know what? Uh, I, I have to admit, the parents and the scoutmasters are doing too good of a job. Because I started hearing, I just want to be with my family. I want to spend time with my grandma. I want to have a nice meal and play with my siblings. I, I want to just have a day to play with my mom and dad. And I thought all the moms are going to have to run for the Kleenex in that room that night because it's just such a touching moment. The kids are sharing that. It took ten kids before I got any mention of video games or any other thing that we would normally think would be on a wish list for kids for Christmas. It's just like... You know, sheesh, the kids ruined my whole intro to the message today. I was planning on, you know, I mean, sometimes it's just a little selfishness is really good for a good introduction. They wouldn't oblige me with it. It was just crazy. So, you get to be a part of the intro today instead. And uh, so, for the next few seconds, I want you to turn to a neighbor and I want you to tell them one gift or two gifts that you really wanted as a kid growing up. Go for it. You guys really wanted something, didn't you, as a kid? That's awesome. I remember growing up, I wanted this new tabletop hockey set, you know, the kind where you spin to hit the puck, And except I wanted the really nice one. We had one, but I wanted the really nice one with the, the full glass around the outside, and I wanted the electronic scoreboard so my brother couldn't cheat on the score. And, 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 and how many of you remember this? I was alive in 1975. How many remember what everybody wanted in 1975? Pong, the first video game console ever. It's so awesome. Doesn't everybody still have that? Isn't that what your kids want for this Christmas? You know, uh, every year as Christmas just showed up under the tree, we would start to inspect them, as, as, as you're supposed to do, right? As a kid, you're supposed to inspect them, and, and you're supposed to see if it's the right thing. And, and I, I'm amazed, you know, ch- children are so resilient in their hope. And, and I was always, my hopes always remained really high every year growing up that I was going to get what I wanted, even though my dad had this sinister sense of humor. He liked to get the boxes that looked like what I wanted, like the hockey table-sized boxes. And he would, uh, he would wrap them up. He would, he would stuff them with filler to make them feel the, about the right weight. And when you shake them, they'd feel about the right thing. And then you'd open it up, and there'd be a, another gift wrapped inside. And you, you get the figure, like, six deep. You know, there's every, you just keep opening it up, and there's another gift to unwrap. And, and at one point, I thought, you know, Dad, if you would have just... Spent the money instead of on the wrapping paper, I might have been able to have that hockey table that I always wanted. But I didn't get it ever. <laughs> so. Eventually, you'd get to the smallest box inside, and, and, and the, seriously, this happened on a regular basis. The smallest box inside was always socks and underwear. It was always socks and underwear. I mean, I was an active kid, so I burned holes in my socks like crazy, so I needed socks, and I won't tell you why I needed more underwear all the time, but, but I needed those things, right? So I'm with the Cub Scouts on Monday night, and I asked them, uh, have you ever gotten socks and underwear for Christmas gift? And they just looked at me like, what evil parent would ever do that? I just, I was, it's a different different era. I mean, growing up, most of my presents at Christmas were, I got almost all my clothes for the year at Christmas. And, and, and yes, my, my parents did give me, uh, you know, uh, something I wanted to. They just weren't socks and underwear ogres in terms of gifts and stuff. But they were all the things I needed, but they didn't necessarily make my Christmas wish list, did they? Now, we asked uh, you on Facebook this last week, what are some of the gifts that you got growing up uh, as that fit the bill of not what you wanted, but what you needed. And we had several people share their stories. Here's one, Amanda Huggins. Uh, she says, I can remember getting a Christmas bulb every single year as a little kid from my great-grandmother with the year on it. 
As a kid, I remember thinking how much I would prefer another toy instead of a decoration for the tree. As an adult, though, that box of Christmas bulbs is my favorite thing to unpack every single year. It makes me feel close to her again, even though she's been gone for years. I talked to Amanda in the first service, and she said she hangs it on a ribbon over her window every year, and it's one of her favorite things of the year to get out now. Stephen Barnes wrote this. He says, one year we got to open up one present each on Christmas Eve. How many of you get to open one present on Christmas Eve, and then you open the rest on Christmas Day? There's a lot of people out there like that. Okay, so here's, here's Stephen's story. He says, I searched carefully through the presents and knew I found the perfect one to open. Several people kept trying to change my choice, but I knew better. Doesn't that sound like a kid? So that year for Christmas Eve, I opened a pack of 8D batteries. The next day, I got a battleship to go with them. And then here's another one from Monica. She says, one year long time ago, all I wanted for Christmas was a boombox, and all my sister wanted was a TV. As we were opening our gifts, we were unwrapping the standard stocks, jackets, blah, blah, blah. So she, she, she's had the same kind of parents I had. Our parents made us wait to open the big boxes and then made us open them at the same time, shoulder to shoulder. As we excitedly ripped through the paper, we freeze with excitement at the sight of the boxes. We rip through the taped-up box and throw open the package to find old shoes and clothes. That's right, old shoes and clothes. Later that day, we received our real gifts, but Mom and Dad wanted to teach us how to be thankful for what we had, and any gifts given to us never have forgotten that feeling and that she shared Two pictures. Aren't those priceless pictures? The before and the after picture. The one on the right is her sister. She didn't, she didn't want to claim that bad of a look, but she said my look wasn't too much different when I was looking down. So that's funny. So I remember in, uh, when I was in college, a good friend of mine, his mom for his 19th, uh, when he was 19 years old, his mom for Christmas gave him Rogaine. It was a not-so-subtle hint that she didn't appreciate the receding hairline at 19 years old. You know, some, some gifts are like that. They aren't necessarily what you want, but they are what you need, or at least they're what mom thinks you need if it's Rogaine, right? If we could go back to the very first Christmas and get a GoPro video view of that first Christmas, it's very, very much like that. Jesus, this gift that all the world so desperately needs... But when he's born into the world, they didn't even notice the present put under the tree. Barely noticed it. No lights, no fights, no black eyes to get that last TV at Walmart, you know, or the last gift at Walmart. No record-breaking sales event, no worldwide publicity. So why was that, this greatest gift? Why was it that this most pivotal event, this most extravagant gift given in all of human history at the time went so unnoticed. It's because people it wasn't what people were wanting, but what they needed. And Jesus came in such an unexpected way. It's not often we turn to John for the Christmas story because the book of John says nothing about the actual Christmas events. It doesn't mention shepherds, Mary, Joseph, the birth. It doesn't mention any of that. But it does mention some very important things about the beginning of Jesus and who he is. And each gospel writer in, in the Bible emphasizes different things about the birth. Mary, or Matthew uh, emphasizes, uh, t- speaking to a Jew- Jew- Jewish audience, emphasizes the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, that he fulfilled all these Old Testament prophecies. 
Luke, a little bit more of a, a methodical, historical writer, emphasizes a little more of the humanity of Jesus by the way he writes the Gospels. And John emphasizes the deity of Christ. He wants us to understand that though Jesus is fully human, he's also fully God. And he begins the text this way. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, John is using this term word in reference to Jesus. He's equating word as a name for Jesus. And the word in Greek is actually the word logos. And it simply means this. It simply means the expression or declaration of a thought. So what John is trying to say about God is that Jesus is the expression of God. Jesus is the manifestation of God. So let's look at that again. He says, in the beginning was the word. Jesus has always been. The Word was with God. Jesus was a part of God, was there when the universe was spoken into being. And the Word was God. The Logos was Theos. Jesus is God. This is God in the flesh. Now, if this is the Son of God being born as a baby into the world, then that's a pretty big deal, right? And, and with hindsight, as, as many of us who, who believe in that, we, we realize it's a big deal, right? But in the, if we had been living in that moment, I don't think we would have seen it quite that way. Had we known about this event when it happened and lived at that time, we probably would have thought that the earth should stand still, right? That this should be the most spectacularly celebrated worldwide known event ever on that day, that year, and all of history. But when we read it from the perspective of being there in that moment, the wrapping paper of this moment doesn't seem that impressive to us. It seems logical to me that, uh, that this event should have been much more carefully and much more extravagantly thought out and executed. Now, I'm not trying to be critical of God's gift giving. I mean, I, I, I can be critical of my gift giving. I, you know, I'm the type of person who just, I, I want to know what I'm going to get. I want to know where it is. And I want to go get it and be done. And I don't do a lot of flair. In fact, the best invention ever was gift bags and tissue paper. I think that that has made... Hasn't it? Man, come on. For most of us, that's made Christmas great, right? Christmas story, especially in Luke, could leave you with questions thinking the coming of God as a baby wasn't too well thought out. It's a little ordinary. It's like it's almost this picture of God just getting things done with whatever was around. And yet we know that from the very beginning it was a planned event. I mean, we see the first prophecy about Jesus coming in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve's sin, and in that very moment is the first promise of a Savior coming. And so there's history, of this, this history leading up to this is thousands of years filled with promises of prophecies of promises of the, of the Messiah coming. And we see millions of people over that time period living, praying, looking for, hoping for this event. Now, that, that kind of puts in perspective, doesn't it, a little bit sometimes when we get really impatient with God not answering things fast for us, that the fact that it took thousands of years for him to answer this. But those who continued throughout the generations to believe and look for this event to happen, I most surely thought, when he comes, we will know it. It's going to be a really, really big deal. But in large part, what we what we read just doesn't seem to match up with the picture of in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. I mean, really? Then why Mary and Joseph? 
Mary and Joseph are not just poor. They're so poor they couldn't buy the sacrificial lamb required for their firstborn son by the Levitical law. And isn't that an irony? They can't afford to buy a lamb for the Lamb of God. All they could afford was to buy two little doves. And it makes you start to ask, is that really how you planned it, God? Is this really what you wanted? And it just seems like a presence such as your son, the, the word become flesh that made a dwelling among us, should be carefully delivered to just the right people. And then, of course, there's the whole Christmas journey that we tend to romanticize, this journey of Mary and Joseph from Nazareth to Bethlehem. But, but come on, she's nine months pregnant, and she's riding a donkey. I mean, this is not like the first-class cabin in an airline with your comfy, comfy couch seats that you can recline in. This is, this is a donkey. And they get there, and there's no room in the inn. And it seems like if, if God were planning this event, he could have at least arranged for a reservation at the presidential suite, right? I mean, he's got some connections. He could probably pull that off, right? He could have, something could have opened up, but, but there's no room. So they end up in this cold, damp cave with some boards and probably some bushes around the opening to try to hold out some of the elements so it's not all just raw living outdoors. And it just seems like for an event like this that God could have taken care of the details just a little bit better. Uh, maybe this is even more, even more even poignantly seen in Luke 2, 7 where it says this, and it says, And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son, and she wrapped, wrapped him in cloths, Claws, rags. She wrapped him in no longer usable socks and underwear. Rags. That's what she wrapped him in. And she placed him in a manger. I mean, really, the creator of the universe being born as a baby, in the beginning was the word, and he's wrapped in somebody else's thrown away underwear and socks and laid in a feeding trough in a stable. It's such a disconnect between what should have been and what was. And it begs the question, what's the reason behind how Jesus came? You see, we see all these details of the Christmas story each year, and they're so familiar with us, but but I think we forget to stop and ask, ask the question, why did it happen the way it did? We love to see our romanticized Norman Rockwell-like picture of this, this young, poor girl named Mary birth in a birth, giving birth in a stable, laying him in this cute little manger that, that we make into this beautiful kind of, you know, mythic scene. And, but it's much more raw, much more dirty, much more ordinary, much more cold and harsh of a picture than that. So what's the reason behind it? I think the reason is this. We expect the Christmas story to be comfortable and trouble-free. And we often think our faith should be the same way. I mean, think about it. I'm sure that Mary was told she was giving, when she was giving birth to the Son of God that she just assumed there'd be some privileges with it, right? I mean, God could work out the details of the birth. There was going to be some sort of supernatural epidural. And if, if you're giving birth to God, the Son of God, you expect it to be this divinely easy, extravagant experience born in the best of the best the world has to offer. But he was born to a poor family. And there were a lot of struggles. I think it's because of this. Because God wants to identify with us in our struggles. See, 
Did you ever have a friend who, um, maybe, maybe, let's say, maybe you lost your dad. Maybe your dad died, and, and your friend came to you, and they, 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 they said, I understand. And you ask him, well, has your dad died? No. Then do you really understand what I'm going through? Or maybe it's a different experience. And how does it feel when somebody comes to you and says, I understand, but they have no idea what you've gone through because they haven't experienced anything even remotely close to what you're going through? It doesn't feel very good, right? But on the other hand, contrast that to someone who comes to you who's gone through almost the exact same struggle or maybe even worse. And they sit down with you and they put their arm around you and they say, it hurts, doesn't it? And I understand. It hurts. What's the difference in that feeling and that relationship at that moment? You see, oftentimes I think we see God as this distant God who has this perfect life. He has no struggles. He has all the power. He has all the wealth. He's totally unrelatable to us. And that kind of God certainly is hard to relate to because, I mean, when we're weak, he's strong, right? When we're afraid and fearful, he has nothing to fear. When we're anxious, he doesn't know an anxious thought. When we're in pain, he has no pain. We see God and we have a hard time believing that he identifies with us in our day-to-day real human life. And so we too easily see him as a person who just is one of those people that says, I understand, but he really doesn't have a clue because he hasn't faced the things you and I do. At least not with the same level of power or intensity that we have to face it, right? But the truth is, God identifies with us in our struggles so that we can know that he knows what we're going through and is compassionate toward us. See, if you're struggling financially, Jesus grew up poor. He knew what it was like to live paycheck to paycheck, meal to meal, trying to stay warm in a cold and harsh world. If you're struggling with strained family relationships where there's disapproval or somebody doesn't believe, you feel like somebody doesn't believe in you or there's conflict or opposition or disappointment or competition, Jesus experienced that. Have you been, have you, maybe you've had a friend or a close, a close person to, your, to you betray you and, and stab you in the back, betray your trust. And, and Jesus experienced that. It hurts, doesn't it? Uh, you know, have you had, maybe you've had too many frustrating days at work with conflict, with projects you, you just can't get done and, and somebody else gets the credit for something or, or, or you're working in a less than ideal situation. And Jesus experienced that. Have you had moments of extreme anxiety and stress that was almost overwhelming in your life at times? Jesus experienced that in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? Have you been unjustly treated and physically abused? I'm sorry if you have. Jesus has experienced that as well. Have you felt helpless at times in your life? Jesus came as a helpless baby. And I know he felt helpless when he lost all control, being taken and placed and nailed to a cross. You see, Hebrews 4.15 says this about, this about God and about Jesus in particular. It says he is able to sympathize with us in every way because he's gone through what we've gone through in Jesus. Because God can identify with our struggles. And because of that, there's this unexpected gift we see in the next verse in Hebrews 4.16. It says this, Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, because God knows. 
so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Because when we go to him, we won't receive pat answers. We won't receive unsympathetic responses. And we won't even, in our own weakness, receive condemnation for him just being stronger and us being weak. Because God knows what we've struggled with. He's experienced it and faced it. And the question is, is that how you approach God? With that kind of confidence that he understands. That he deeply feels your pain, your frustration, your sadness with you. That he's compassionate toward you in the moment. And that he's so ready to be there with you and to supply everything you need and want in that situation in a relevant and powerful way. See, God pours out his heart with an unmatched compassion and generosity because he's experienced the most intense pain and sadness and emotions and similar situations and kind of circumstances to you personally. He's not just experienced it vicariously by reading in a book or watching somebody else's life. It's been a personal experience for him. See, the the invitation of Christmas is both this, that we receive a God who identifies with us, and therefore we get to approach him with confidence. But even when we realize that, there's still too often we don't accept the gift because we still think, well, yeah, he may have experienced the same stuff as we experienced, but, but he's God and I'm not. So the identification thing still seems kind of weak and hollow to us. Paul actually expands on this idea of God becoming flesh uh, and, and in a way that makes Jesus not only fully relatable to us, but also makes Jesus an accessible example that we can truly follow because of how complete his identification with us is. In Philippians 2, speaking of Jesus, it says this, "...who being in very nature God, the Word, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing." This word nothing is an important word. It's often translated as well, emptied self. It's almost kind of pouring oneself out or taking a part of yourself out of you. And what it's saying is he laid aside his rights as God. He laid aside his equality with God to become fully human. He limited himself while here on earth to live only through the exact same power that you and I have have to face life. He didn't play the God trump card. Somehow he set that aside, he emptied himself, and he lived life exactly like you and I live it, fully identifying with us by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. The word made flesh. Jesus is saying to you and I, I know what it's like to be fully human and limited just as you are as humans. There's another contrast, though, that comes out of this idea of, you know, this son of God coming as a baby, and we think it should be so extravagant, and and it's simply this. It's this example of the humility God shows us. See, the surprising part of the Christmas story is not the angels announcing the birth of Jesus. You would expect that kind of thing for the son of God coming to earth, right? The surprising part is who they announce it to, the shepherds, not the pinnacle of social circles. 
just common, ordinary, good, hardworking people. The surprising part of the Christmas story is not the miraculous virgin birth. I mean, one would expect a miracle with the accompanying uh, entry of the Son of God into the world. That's, that's not surprising at all. The surprising part is the poor, unknown, uneducated, unconnected mother, Mary, who lives in a town with the reputation that the Pharisees repeat later in the Gospel, saying, can any good come from Nazareth? You see, with his birth, Jesus turns the value system of this world upside down. Now, a great way to think of this is, is Jesus was born in Bethlehem, three miles from Jerusalem. King Herod's palace at the time was there. It was an incredible piece of architecture. And if Mary and Joseph would have stood outside, this is what they would have seen. This is looking from Bethlehem to Jerusalem. And, and they would have clearly seen this palace wherever it was because it was only three miles away. It was up on a hill. It was 90 feet tall. The building of the temple itself covered 45 acres. That's an, an enormous, right? And around it were 200 acres of pools and gardens and all sorts of other nice things for a king. And so here is King Herod. And here's the Son of God. Lying in a manger, in a cave, cold, damp cave. You see, but God coming to earth humbly is a way to show us how he wants us to live, the kind of attitude he wants us to have. Philippians 2, the passage continues saying this, Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And for this reason, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. And if we think of ourselves like the way Jesus thought of himself, who had equal status with God, but didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to that advantage of that status. He, he set aside his privileges of being the deity. He, he set aside the rightful joys and the, uh, that come with that. And he took on the status of a servant. And he became human. And he stayed human. And he served others with grace and love and selflessness, regardless of the pain, the disappointment, the frustration, the arguments, the slowness of growth around people, the slowness of people to understand the betrayals that went on. He remained faithful to love with a selfless grace, serving in obedience to God's plan, even to the point of crucifixion, the worst kind of death imaginable. So Jesus doesn't tell us how to live. He doesn't tell us how to live this humble, self-sacrificial way from his throne in heaven. He comes and he lives with us as one of us and he shows us. See, the life application lesson I think we get from this demonstration of humility is simply this, that Jesus shows us that true glory, true meaning, true fulfillment, a full, vibrant life is found in living with this kind of other-focused, radical generosity and forgiveness. See, it's not found in our, our resume or how well our houses are decorated or the clothes we wear or the vacations we take and make memories with our kids or the club to which we belong. It's found, abundant life is found in this radical, faithful, gracious, loving, outrageously generous response to God's love, which results in us faithfully serving others regardless of the difficulty 
or the pain or the disappointment or the joy of the circumstances of those relationships. It's the message that Christmas reminds us of, and it's, it's a message that I, we need a regular reminder of, don't we? I don't know about you, but it becomes really easy for me to begin to focus on life and think that life is about the fun and the memories with that, the recreation, the stature of our accomplishments in life. And we so easily find one or more of these areas lacking when we focus on them. Maybe, maybe this last year you didn't get to take the vacation you really dreamed of and the fun that that represents or the memories that represents for you and your family and you saw everyone else posting all their pictures on Facebook and it, and it depressed you. Maybe you didn't get the promotion you wanted this last year or grow the part of your business as much as you wish and you saw other people getting rewards and, and, and that's disappointing. Or maybe life has been just simply hard this year. Maybe there's just stuff going on in the relationships in your family or friendships that are just difficult. And there's been some sadness and struggle this year. And you look on Facebook and you see everybody posting all their smiling pictures of family and you go, why can't I have more of that in life. And you wonder, you know, you wonder about that. But that's, that's kind of the hardened reality of a real life of, uh, that it could be compared to something that else that's much, much smaller, much less significant. Kind of like Christmas as kids. You know, we would compare the, the number of gifts we got to make sure that all of us got fair treatment. We would compare the size of the gifts. We would compare the cost of the gifts, right? And we do that kind of thing a little bit as an adult, but we do it a different way. We oftentimes say to our adult friends, don't buy me anything. Just get the kids stuff this Christmas. But, but deep down, we really hope that they'll buy me something, right? And if they take me seriously and don't get me anything, then I'm a little sad and I'm a little let down, right? And if they don't listen at all and they get me something really big, then they've outdone me and I'm a little down as well. So you have a 66% chance of clouds and rain for Christmas this year, right? I don't like those odds. I don't like the statement, the house always wins. I don't like those kinds of odds. And if the surveys are right, the odds are even more against us to, to have a great time with that kind of a focus. I mean, there's a, there's a survey I said that two out of, saw that two out of five men will buy a present for their wife this Christmas that is really a present they want, like a new 4K TV or a, or a new tablet or a round of golf or, or I, I read, I read this somewhere and I don't know, you know, everybody makes up these one in ten stuff, so who knows whether it's real, but somebody said one in ten, the one, the, the one of the top ten gifts men will get their wives is a new video gaming system. I want to know the men who can get away with that. They could probably teach a lot of, to a lot of us on no, the team. You know. Often we factor in, when we factor in those things, we approach Christmas and we approach special times like this and we have a 75% chance of being let down. But Jesus helps us refocus on generosity and service, of creating a legacy of salvation, of redemption, of making people's lives better and not on things. Not focusing on things, but focusing on who we are as approachable, as humble, as caring, as generous, as forgiving people. You see, humble people don't need a lot of things to make themselves happy. All they need is the love to make the lives of other people around them full and rich, to bring peace and comfort and have the joy of walking with people through difficult times and seeing them back to a place of healing or peace or joy after a difficult time. 
to live like Jesus said he lived and his purpose for coming. In Matthew 20, 28, Jesus says this about himself. He says, I have not come to be served. I've not come to focus on what I will receive, but I have come to serve and give my life as a ransom for many, leaving a legacy of redemption, of healing in other people's lives. That's the story of Christmas, and that's the life Jesus wants us all to grasp. See, one way we could maybe even summarize this whole message would be this. We expect the Christmas story to be a demonstration of God's supremacy. But God wanted to make a statement of his incredible love for us, right? See, ultimately, when they look at all the details of Christmas and they don't seem to be well thought out, they are, in fact, a demonstration of God's love for us because they speak of a sacrifice to come close to us, to identify with us. God had the world at his feet, and yet he comes as a helpless baby, born to a poor family, laid in a feeding trough. And that sacrifice is a statement of his love for you and I. Isn't there the sense in life that the greater the sacrifice, the more clearly we understand love? Isn't that true? I've heard a number of stories recently, or read a number of stories, both about, uh, about sacrifice and love. I read a story about a father who superglued his dentures so his daughter could have money for books in college. I, I heard the story of a grandmother who decided to let go of her retirement bucket list of trips instead so she could help take care of her special needs grandkids and make the life of her daughter more manageable and a little less stress. I remember the story, I heard the story, somebody talking about a husband who was taking on side jobs so his wife, who had a dream of being home more with the kids, could fulfill that dream. I heard a story about an adult child who gave up, gave up a prominent career, a promising career, to care for his aging and sick parent. I heard about a husband who agreed to take swing dance lessons. Now, you laugh, but that's sacrifice. That's a sacrifice of pride if it's me. Come on. Right? I heard about a family who chose to not upgrade and get a nicer, bigger home, but instead stay in a home with kids having to share rooms so that they could continue to tithe and not just continue to tithe to God's ministry, but give more to the poor and be even more generous to see God's good name go forward in good acts. I saw a story about a spouse who chose to defer a promotion that would have resulted in a move or much more travel just so the children could have stability in relationships with family and friends and grow up with that kind of stability. Those are stories of sacrifice. So when we see the great sacrifices of Jesus, the things that seem so out of place for the God of the universe becoming a baby, they really answer this question. How far would God go to show his love for you? He certainly could have had a much easier existence, but he chose to come into the world in the way he did as a way to be sure that you understand how far he'll go to show you his love. I love Christmas time. I love singing carols. I love singing, I know you probably love singing Silent Night as well. There's such true, beautiful meaning in the song Silent Night. But... I don't think that's what Mary and Joseph were singing on that night. There's no heating lamp for Jesus. Joseph delivered the baby with his rough carpenter hands, cold, freezing hands, touching the baby and his wife. That 
didn't go over well, I'm sure, very well. We also like to sing, the cattle are lowing, the baby awakes, the little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. But the reality is, they're giving birth to a baby while the cow is chewing his cud and making cow pies in the delivery room. And there's sheep bleeding and probably chickens clucking, and I'm sure it's safe to say that that baby Jesus was crying. And his parents were exhausted, probably hungry, probably cold, just from all the stress that they've been through of the travel and the unknown when they got there. So here's what I'd love to invite you to as we approach Christmas this year. As you set out and look at your nativity scenes and decorations for Christmas, I want you to think this year about some of the unexpected parts of that story. See the stable for what it is, this small, damp cave. Hear the noises of the animals in the barn. Picture or, or smell the aroma uh, that, would, that would be in the barn at that night. Picture a manger, not, not as the cute little ornament we stick out, but as this cow-spit-coated, moldy, dirty feeding trough. And would you see the Son of God laying in that manger, and would you ask yourself and tell yourself, He did this for me. He did this for me. Would you allow the unexpected parts of the Christmas story to make clear in your own heart and your own life that God knows what you're going through, whatever it is, whatever it is you're facing right now, whatever tension, whatever disappointment, whatever pain, God knows what you're going through, and he loves you very much in that moment. And that God has also called you to live a life of sacrificial service and generosity. See, the more success, the more power, the more wealth he gives you, the more he wants you to be humble and give and be generous. See, and if you've not already done this and you're here today and you've not made your choice to follow Jesus, you've kind of held that choice off at a distance, then that's an invitation for you today, too that God identifies with you. He knows what you're going through. He's not a distant, angry God. He's not a distant, unrelatable God. He's a God who knows what you're going through. And he wants to be close to you. And he wants you to be close to him. He wants you to accept this gift that you haven't even known necessarily to even look for. Maybe life for you and your faith has just been about religion, about doing the right things, about checking off the boxes, being a good moral person. It's been more about morals. But God is inviting you to something much deeper than that today. He's inviting you to relationship with someone who compassionately understands and cares for you. If that's a decision you want to make today, then I want to invite you, as we're worshiping or at the end of the service, to come talk to me, and and we'll talk more about how to make that decision Let's just pray for a moment and ask God to come speak to us. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would come right now. And you'd help each one of us get in touch with the ways that we have looked at you as you're nice, you're good, you're loving, you're compassionate, but you don't really fully know. Lord, I pray that you'd help each one of us to receive the gift of your Holy Spirit coming to us and making us sense that you do know, that you do understand, that you have compassion for us right where we're at, that you have love and you have joy over us right where we're at. Holy Spirit, would this be a a season where we're reminded 
of that. And would you help us, Lord, shift our hearts away from things and shift our hearts to leading a legacy of forgiveness, of generosity, of kindness. Would you help us through this season make the decisions we need to make to make that happen so that we follow you well. And so, Lord, as we stand before you one day, that we will have lived a humble life, and just as you exalted Christ's name, that you would also exalt ours as we have followed you, saying, good job, well-lived life. You've brought a ransom of many to me, of redemption, of healing, of kindness to people who never thought they could be loved. And we've been able to be a part of that, Lord. Come, Holy Spirit. As we continue our worship, I want to invite you to a tradition we've been doing for the last few years. It's the tradition of decorating our tree with ornaments of our five. Now, if you're around here and you don't know what I'm talking about when I say our five, what we want everybody here to do is we want everybody to have your five, whether it's three or seven, don't get, don't, let's not be perfectionistic and have to you know, make sure it's only five, no more than five, no less than five. But we talk about our five, the five people in our life who we have regular contact with, so most likely they're local. I mean, maybe it's somebody you call every day or every week on the phone, that could be someone too. But otherwise, it's most likely someone local who is disconnected from church and intentional pursuit of God or not a follower of Jesus. And we're praying for them and we're asking all throughout the year, we're praying for them and asking God to create opportunities for you to care for your five so that you can be Jesus' hands and feet to them, for you to make invitations, for you to introduce them to your other friends here so they have an opportunity to build friendship and begin to discover how good God is. So we have some ornaments over here. And uh, what I just recommend is you flip them over, and on the back we got some markers. You write the names of your five. If you don't have five, write three today. If you have ten, write ten. And then we just hang them on the tree, and as you do, just pray, saying, God, would you bless them today? Would you bless them this season? Would you become real to them? And would you give me opportunities and give me eyes and ears to see the opportunities to care for them during this season? Let's continue to worship and do that. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you are loving Quest podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information about Quest, who we are and what we do, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at GoToQuest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org. Thank you.